0: Arif Katra and I'm the host of Voices Worth Listening To. This is a podcast dedicated to sharing stories about diversity, stories that I hope will make you think and reflect on how we experience each other's differences. My goal is to encourage change in our individual perspectives and in the ways in which we live and work together. Today, this twelfth episode of Voices Worth Listening To marks the podcast's one-year anniversary, and I want to thank all my listeners for their words of encouragement and support. It has meant the world to me. So let's jump in. Today's episode asks, does the idea of Islamophobia capture how Muslim professionals experience the workplace. My friends and family will tell you that when faced with working versus working out, I choose the former versus the latter. But over the last three or four months, I've been really good. I'm walking about 45 minutes to an hour a day, four to six times a week. And you can find me, usually at odd hours of the night, walking the streets of my highly suburban neighborhood with manicured lawns and interlocked driveways with my flashing armband in tow. With it being summer, and with COVID restrictions being loosened, I see many more cars on the road, even in suburbia. So when I hear a car, or I see its lights behind me, and I'm on a walk, I tend to walk to the side of the road, you know, closer to the lawns and driveways. But a few weeks ago, my behavior changed. Not deliberately, but subconsciously, when I heard a car or saw lights behind me, I walked in to the middle of the closest driveway or lawn. I stopped and I turned around so I could see the driver. This was happening four or five times on my hour-long walk. And the only reason I noticed this change in my behavior was at midnight one day, I walked into the lawn of someone sitting on their porch. They were very gracious. They yelled out, Hey, don't worry. The streets are so wide here. No one's going to hit you. Hmm. The streets are so wide here. No one is going to hit you. And at that moment, I realized that I was scared. Ever since that family in London, Ontario was willfully run down by a man in a truck, I've been scared. It's not a rational fear, but it has changed my behavior in a way that not even I noticed until my neighbor assured me that I'm safe. So what am I scared of? Well, I'm scared of Islamophobia. But not for the reasons you might imagine, I'm not scared of being run over by a racist. That's exceedingly rare. What I am scared of are the droves of media outlets, civil society organizations, corporations, and non-profit organizations who state in one way or another, we are against Islamophobia. You might be asking, are you seriously afraid of people coming out against Islamophobia? Yes. Yes. Because Islamophobia is not real. What is real is that a small but active group of people hidden in all corners of society actively hate Muslims. When I walk during the day, I sometimes walk in the green belt near my home. And I also have a fear when I'm on those walks. The fear of snakes. It's called aphidiophobia. A phobia is a type of anxiety disorder. When you have a fear of heights or a fear of clowns, you can't be rational, you can't be deliberate, and you do everything in your power to put distance between you and your fear. Fear of Muslims or fear of Islam doesn't work that way because it's not a phobia. It is hate. It is discrimination. It is biased. It is unfair. And it is irrational. But it is not a phobia. When someone has a phobia, the appropriate reaction is empathy. When someone hates, the appropriate reaction is not empathy. It's action. So for the rest of our time together, we won't speak about Islamophobia because it's not a real thing. What we will speak about is how sometimes a conscious and often unconscious apprehension Fear and even deep-seated hate for Muslims shapes how Muslims experience the professional world. In preparation for today's podcast, I reached into my network of Muslim colleagues and into my own treasure trove of work experiences and asked people about their experiences as Muslims at work. The words I heard over and over again as people shared their stories were sacrifice, hiding, silence, and fear. And these weren't just words. They captured experiences that often kept Muslim professionals on the sidelines of corporate life. Story number one, sacrifice. As a faculty member, I know firsthand how stressful on-campus recruitment is for MBA and undergraduate students across the globe. Since I had a background in banking and consulting, and because I taught strategy, I had the opportunity to mentor many young people looking to build a career in consulting. The recruitment process designed by the likes of BCG and McKinsey was rigorous, even for the MBA students who often had years of work experience. And when you're a candidate, you're expected to attend networking events, go through multiple case-based interviews, and often you have to have meals with various people from the organization. A question I often received from my Muslim students was, Arif, you drink, right? I mean, it's hard to have worked in investment banking and then consulting without drinking. I always smiled because it wasn't really a question. It was a hypothesis looking for a confirmation. And I told the truth. No, I don't drink, nor have I. The reaction was always the same. Really? How did you make that work? The truth was, it didn't always work. I got a lot of questions. I got a lot of suggestions that if I drank, it may make my clients feel more comfortable. I got a lot of judgment. When my Muslim students bring up drinking with me, I always ask, Do you drink? And the response was always interestingly common. No, but I think I'm going to start so I don't stand out as much during recruitment. You know, fitting in is important. That response broke my heart. And I wanted to say, Be you. Why do you want to work for someone who wants you to be someone else? But when a Muslim professional comes to you and broaches this conversation, it's not easy for them, because they are talking about sacrificing one of their core values to fit in. The conversation is not being had on a whim. It's with a great deal of thought and often much regret. At the end of recruitment season, I had one of my Muslim students, who was going out for a consulting job, come to see me. He said, Arif, thanks for all your help with the consulting interviews. How'd it go, I asked. I didn't get an offer. He continued, But you know what, Arif? The saddest part about all of this is that I stand in front of you, first, without a job in consulting, and second, without a key part of my identity. See, I thought that if I started drinking, it would improve my chances of fitting in, and that would help me land the job. I made such a big sacrifice, and now I'm left with less than I started with. I wanted to hug him, not because I felt bad for him, but because he had had his first experience as a Muslim negotiating a world of work that is happy to know you are Muslim. I mean, it's a great box to check off when it comes to diversity, but then expects you will be just like everyone else on the team. Story number two, hiding. Let me introduce you to my good friend, Neelam. She lives in Greenwich, Connecticut, a posh suburb of New York City. She owns 50% of her house, but after her divorce, she had to work low-paying jobs to support her kids. She's an amazing mom and has a passion for early childhood education. She had been saving for about 10 years, and a few years ago, saved enough money to start her own home-based daycare. Neelam is a eclectic educator. Her approach to education is all about intersections. She's constantly looking to see how art, civil society, globalization, geometry, and culture meet in the world around us. She has about 20 kids in her small but highly engaging daycare program, and Neelam is Muslim. Every year, when new parents express an interest in her program, she has to sell her approach. They usually come to her home, and tour the daycare areas. Those parents who are truly paying attention will sometimes ask Neelam, are you Muslim? The question, completely inappropriate. But I asked Neelam, what would you say? She explained, it completely depends on how the question is being asked. Or if sometimes the fear in the voice of the person asking the question is palpable. The first time I got asked, I immediately knew I had to say no. Part of me was angry about the question. I mean, a few Islamic art pieces and a few books on Islamic architecture does not a Muslim make. But more than angry, I was disappointed in myself for saying no. But I've been struggling for so long to get on my own two feet that I didn't want this part of my identity to stop me. I asked Neelam, do you always say no? She said, sometimes I say, well, yes, but I'm not practicing. But the truth is, that doesn't make me feel any better. So I asked Neelam, what do you think would happen if you told the truth and said, yes, I'm a practicing Muslim? Her response intrigued me. She said, part of me knows that if I openly admitted to being Muslim, I would have fewer kids in the daycare. But truth be told, I think I want to believe that because it helps me justify why it's okay to deny such an important part of my identity. I think I deny being Muslim because I've learned that it's never seen as something that adds value. It's not always seen as a negative, but sometimes it feels like it's seen as a disability of sorts. I have a friend who is legally blind, Neelam explained, and I'm always amazed at her ability to negotiate the physical world. Sometimes I feel people in the professional world look at Muslims similarly, like it's surprising to them to see a successful Muslim. And Neilam is right. The proof is in the pudding. There are only a handful of Muslim CEOs in North America and Europe. And most of them? Well, they keep that part of their identity private. You know, hidden. Story number three. Silence. What I'm about to tell you happened a long time ago, when I was a doctoral student at the Richard Ivey School of Business. It was September 2001, and two planes had hit the Twin Towers in New York. A smattering of doctoral students and faculty gathered in the lounge, where there was a TV, and we all watched in disbelief and horror. So many lives lost. Then after about 10 or 15 minutes One doctoral student says, with a great deal of anger and frustration, you know what we need to do? We need to gather up all the Muslims and get them out of Canada before something like this happens here. I was shocked. Never had I heard this level of discrimination from an educator. And this was Canada. The group's reaction, the comment hung in the air, and we all remained silent. And I remember at that moment wanting to say something, but I just couldn't get the words out. So the silence finally ended when someone said, Are you serious? You know we have Muslim colleagues. Arif is Muslim. That comment made me feel so supported, but it too hung in the air of silence. People made their way back to their offices, and the tragedy continued to unfold on the unwatched television. You might be wondering, who spoke out against the bigotry? Maybe you're thinking it was a senior faculty member standing up for the school's values. No, they all remained silent. It was a doctoral student, a young doctoral student, who had the courage to say, this is not who we are. And whether I was a doctoral student or a faculty member, many years later at the school, my being Muslim was a comprehensively ignored reality. People were happy to learn about my being South Asian or a member of the gay community. What was off-limits was my faith. And after so many years, I too have learned to be silent like so many Muslim professionals. Story number four, fear. When I was a faculty member in the U.S., every year, like at every university, my performance was evaluated along three basic criteria, teaching, research, and the service I provided to the profession and the school. I remember one particular meeting with my department chair, let's call him John, John launched into the evaluation meeting, telling me, Arif, I think you've been making great contributions to the school. Your research has been exemplary. You're taking on the mantle of becoming the MBA program director next year. And I want to be the first one to let you know that you're receiving the university's highest honor for teaching, the Howard A. White Award for Teaching Excellence. You will be the second recipient of this award in the business school's history. What was usually an hour-long meeting seemed to end in less than two minutes, and I was a little shocked and overwhelmed by all the compliments. With little left to discuss, the meeting seemed to be ending. And just before I got up, John leans in and says, Arif, there is one other thing I want to discuss with you before you leave. It's not directly related to your evaluation. I said, sure. What is it? And it began. John said, You're a Muslim, to which I nodded. And you've always said to me, Arif, that most Muslims are moderates. Now, I'm certain, as the sky is blue, that I have never said to anyone that most Muslims are moderates, because that's not how Muslims self identify. It's not as though when two Muslims meet, one says, Hi, my name is Abdul. I am a moderate. And the other says, Hi, my name is Kareem. I'm a fanatic. Those are labels that non-Muslims place onto Muslims. Nonetheless, for ease of conversation, I agree. John then says, Arif, I was watching Fox News yesterday. Were you watching? I awkwardly said, no, not yesterday. And John continued, Well, there was a young Muslim commentator on Hannity whose views I thought were rather extremist. And it made me think of you. The sip of water I had just taken came hurling out of my mouth and I said, Why would that make you think of me? And John said, very calmly, Well, I think Islam needs a moderate and articulate representative. And I think you would be great. I didn't know where to begin with that comment. Would I go to the International Muslim Facebook group and its 1 billion members and ask to be nominated? Would I just appoint myself and become this representative? Well, the conversation continued, and there were very funny moments and others that were pretty offensive, but the conversation was interesting. And although I can laugh about it now, I remember leaving that conversation having a sense of fear. See, I learned that as a Muslim on faculty, I was being evaluated, consciously and subconsciously, by my colleagues. They were okay with me being Muslim, as long as my views were very similar to those held by non-Muslims. My being Muslim was fine, as long as it didn't make anyone feel uncomfortable. See, I couldn't just be Muslim. I had to be one that was acceptable. And the underlying assumption was that it had to be made clear to me what kind of Muslim is, in fact, acceptable. You might be thinking, well, this is a one-off conversation with someone who may not have been very tolerant or accepting of differences. I want to believe that, but the data won't let me. Respected organizations such as Angus Reid, Insights Matter, the Association for Canadian Studies, and top Canadian universities have uncovered some compelling statistics, 46% of Canadians have an unfavorable view of Islam, more than for any other religious tradition. 52% of Canadians feel that Muslims can only be trusted a little or not at all. 42% of Canadians think discrimination against Muslims is mainly their own fault. 51% of Canadians support government surveillance of mosques, as compared to 46% of Americans, and 55% of Canadians think the problem of Islamophobia, well, that's overblown by politicians and media. You see, fear of Muslims is real. The effect of that fear on Muslim professionals is also very real. And the implication... Well you'll be hard pressed to find Muslim CEOs of mainstream organizations in Canada, the US or the EU. I guess the next question is why should this matter to organizational leaders? The short answer you can't enable your employees to help your organization be successful if you don't create an environment where everyone can be themselves. Let me explain. The last time I taught a class on implementing strategy, I asked my students to self-select into 12 groups. And I explained that each class session would require one group to come to the front of the class and dance. It could be a performance, it could be participatory, it was up to them. But no matter what they did, they had to explain why. See, when my two-year-old nephew Issa hears music, He dances. He dances like no one is looking. But over the next few years, society will teach him that that's not okay. But when we dance, experts tell us, we are expressing a deep sense of self. And very rarely do people dance alone. They dance in community. So dancing also allows us to celebrate our connections to community. So what does this have to do with being Muslims or your organization's success? See, for an organization to be successful, it needs a well-thought-out strategy. But it also needs key people to bring that strategy to life. And implementing strategy? Well, that's an art requiring individuals who can, in real time, create value as the rubber hits the road. When an organization asks its people to not be themselves to be some sort of vanilla version of themselves, they ask them to be less authentic. And read any book that tells a success story, they all have one message. You can't be successful if you can't be you. When an organization encourages me to hide my Muslimness or deny my key values, it robs me of the fuel I need to help it be successful. See, for most Muslims... Islam is much more than a set of rules or cultural conventions. It is an ethic, comprised of things like care for the vulnerable, sharing, inclusion, sustainability, governance, and the pursuit of knowledge. I mean, the first word in the Quran is not hate, it's not obey, it's not even believe, it's read. When we take talented Muslim professionals and create an environment that asks them to not be themselves, we take away that fuel that makes them successful. So I have one suggestion for organizational leaders. Seek to understand how minority voices within your organization see the organization. Do they feel empowered to be themselves? Are they consciously or subconsciously sacrificing their beliefs to fit in? Are they hiding their identities to be more palatable to the many? Are they afraid to be themselves? Have these conversations. If you have too many people answering yes to these questions, you don't have a diversity issue. You have a success issue. I hope you'll join me again in a few weeks by subscribing to the podcast. And I especially hope that today, the time spent listening to this podcast made you feel that this was a voice worth listening to. If you would like more information about my work in diversity and strategy, please visit my website at www.strat-ology.com. That's st-r-a-t-ol. The music in this podcast is from the Toronto Tabla Ensemble. To find out more, visit torontotabla.com. That's the word Toronto and the word tabla, T-A-B-L-A dot com.